2: Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for people who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to share this interview with you. I'm your host Kelvin Ng from Yale University,
1: and I'm your host Zifeng Liu from Cornell University.
2: World Literature for the Wretched of the Earth, Anti Colonial Aesthetics, Post Colonial Politics, published by Fordham University Press in 2020 by J. Daniel Elam, recovers a genealogy of anti colonial thought that advocates collective inexpertise, unknowing, and unrecognizability. Early 20th century anti colonial thinkers endeavored to imagine a world emancipated from colonial rule, but it was a world they knew they would likely not live to see written in exile, in abjection, or in the face of death, anti-colonial thought could not afford to base its politics on the hope of eventual success, mastery, or national sovereignty. Elam shows how anti-colonial thinkers theorize inconsequential practices of egalitarianism in the service of an impossibility, a world without colonialism. To trace this impossible political theory, Elam foregrounds theories of reading and critique in the writings of Lala Dayal, B.R. Ambedkar, M.K. Gandhi, and Bhagat Singh. These anti-colonial activists theorized reading not as a way to cultivate mastery and expertise, but as a way rather to disavow mastery altogether. To become or remain an inexpert reader, divesting oneself of authorial claims, was to fundamentally challenge the logic of imperial rule, which prize self mastery, authority, and sovereignty. Aligning Fanon's political writing with Auerbach's philological project, Elam brings together the histories of comparative literature and anti colonial thought to be- demonstrate how these early 20th century theories of reading force us to reconsider the commitments of humanistic critique and egalitarian politics in the still colonial present. Over the course of our conversation, we will talk not just about Professor Elam's approach to political theory and intellectual history, but also how he arrived at his project and some of the decisions that he made when assembling a cogent archive of humanistic critique and anti-colonial thought. To learn about these issues and more, join us and stay tuned. I hope you enjoy the book and I hope you enjoy our conversation as well. Today, we're here to talk to Professor J. Daniel Elam, the author of the groundbreaking book, World Literature for the Wretched of the Earth. By discussing this book, we will dive deep to learn about the horizons of expectation illuminating the range of possible futures, a world of unknowing and unrecognizability theorized by such anti-colonial thinkers as Lalahar Milyal, B.R. Ambedkar, M.K. Gandhi, and Bhagat Singh.
1: J. Daniel Ilam is an assistant professor in the department of Comparative Literature at the University of Hong Kong. He previously taught in the Department of English at the University of Toronto, was the Mellon Sawyer Seminar Postdoctoral Fellow in Bibliomigrancy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and was a Fellow in the Society for the Humanities at Cornell University. He specializes in transnational Asian and African literatures in the 20th Century, Modernism, Postcolonial Theory, and Global Intellectual History, and his work focuses on anti-colonialism and anti-imperial critique from South Asia at the beginning of the 20th century. He is the co-editor with Kama McLean and Chris Moffat of two books on South Asian revolutionary anti-colonialism and has published essays in Postcolonial Studies, Interventions, Bioscope, and PMLA.
2: Welcome, Daniel, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your enjoyable book today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, uh, I'm really excited to, uh, to talk to you about the book.
1: Awesome. Um, Daniel, can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself? That is, where did you grow up, where you went to school, how you became interested in your field of study, and who were some influential mentors you had? Uh, (laughs)
0: This is is a complicated question, I guess. Uh, It's a a multi-part question, but I uh, I grew up mostly in the U.S. Uh, I went to um, UNC Chapel Hill in North Carolina for my B.A. in comparative literature. Um, And there I uh, was really, really fortunate to... uh, all under the mentorship of Lillian first uh, who was um, well past retirement age, uh, uh, but invited me over to her house on Sundays for tea uh, and kind of taught me one-on-one the history of comparative literature, the history of Jewish philology, um, uh, none of which I kind of could appreciate at age, age 19, but um, I, I it hit me later. Um then I went to Northwestern University. Uh, I I've got a PhD in uh, the rhetoric and public culture program, um, working with uh, Deep uh and Lila Gandhi, um, as well as uh, Janice Radway. Um, so um, those you can kind of see the uh, kind of intellectual formation if you're familiar with their work. Um, Lila, whose work is kind of you know kind of rich retheorization of um, of anti colonial thought. Um, Deep, whose work is um, you know kind of richly engaged with questions of modernity and um, transnationalism and then uh, Jan's work you know which is so rich and um, you know kind of uh, kind of this material critique of, um, of 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 book history of book culture and of reading um, specifically in the US um, uh, but kind of you know was these three people kind of really broadened my horizon to what could be thought or how, what should be thought uh, in terms of um, uh Academic critique, and then, uh, I mean, as you said, I was a postdoc at Wisconsin, um, uh, and really benefited from the mentorship of uh, Bhaven Kadmani and Caroline Levine when she was there. Um, and then uh, you know, uh, the kind of project took that was, that was you know, the project began in some ways as a dissertation, but it really took shape uh, at Wisconsin um, under their um, guidance, uh, under their support. Um, and then uh, kind of came finally finished uh, when I was a fellow at Cornell. Um, so, in conversation with people like um, Natalie Melas uh, and Comparative Literature, um, who just has these kind of, who just has kind of an expansive um, imagination for what comparative literature could be, um, as well as what post colonial theory should be, what anti colonial theory was, is. Um, uh, and so I mean, it's the kind of it's the accumulation of all of these kind of really really important thinkers um, from age 18 on <laughs> that that uh, that made the book what it uh, that made the book what it is um, the book is I mean as, as you've said it's a history of what's um, it something of an intellectual history we can talk about that of uh, um, South Asian anti-colonial thought uh, uh, namely four figures uh, Bjorn Baidkar, uh, M.K. Gandhi, Paget Singh, and Lal um, And it's bracketed by, um, on one end, France Fanon, uh, and the other end, Eric Auerbach, the, the founder of comparative literature uh, in the US. Um, and uh, the way I came about this project was um, to stumble somewhat backwards into it. Uh, I was. Um, uh, I mean, I, when I was an undergraduate, I was uh, the manager, uh, in quotes, of a uh, kind of anarchist Marxist um, bookshop. Um, and I was really drawn to kind of radical theories of egalitarianism uh, and, uh, you know, in kind of desperate search for kind of theories that, um, political theories that kind of imagine these kind of utopian possibilities for egalitarian political community. Um, and and really struggled to find them um, in a lot of um, kind of Western European uh, political philosophy, um, and and nevertheless, I, I I felt compelled to continue that search. And um, you know, in the meantime, I had friends who were moving um, you know back to Delhi, um, and I became fascinated by um, Indian electoral politics of all things, um, and. Uh, and 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 in the process of becoming kind of enthralled with uh, Delhi electoral politics, stumbled my way back in kind of up to the 1920s, um, which is where a lot of contemporary political Indian um, uh, politics still draws its inspiration or still cites, I should say, um, and maybe not inspiration directly, but um, you know, the 1920s still remain this kind of forceful moment in, in contemporary Indian politics, right? So. Um, you, you still see people citing Gandhi as the as the figure for um, the Congress party, as well as the Hindutva kind of uh, BJP party. Bhagat um, Singh has this rich afterlife um, in Punjab. Uh, and Bjorn Baker has come back with a uh, with kind of resounding force in Maharashtra uh, uh, and, and with kind of this new um, um, uh, kind of excellent and really inspiring wave of, of, of Dalit activism. Um, across India, uh, and so, um, and it was kind of you know, in, when I discovered these thinkers, and when I kind of stumbled upon these thinkers whose writings were you know, just really such you know, so so important for the contemporary moment, but then also, um, you know, in their own time, just so expansive in their imagination um, for what an, an emancipatory politics could be, what an egalitarian politics could be, um, and that was really when I thought. You know, I I really, I thought I kind of had had finally found. um, You know, uh, by no means discovered, by no means uncovered. It had been there all along. Um, You know, I finally found this uh, this this corpus of you know extraordinarily radically um, egalitarian um, political thought, and uh, that was that was the basis for wanting to continue working on it. Uh, Was just being so enthralled with. Uh, you know, this this new way of imagining the world that should be otherwise, that could be otherwise, um, that could be you know that could exist after colonialism, that could exist without racism, that could exist without other forms of injustice, um, and that's and that's what that was what drew me to the project in two thousand eight, um, and that's what <laughs> I guess that's what kept me through kept me interested in the project uh, for the following twelve years, I guess. Um,
2: Thank you so much for that. I I think that that's really beautifully put. And I think that it's really striking when you you look at Indian politics today, of course, on one hand, there's a very, very stringent constitutionalism of the people that we witness at, for example, the Shaheen Bagh protests last year. But on the other hand, you see the sort of expansive political visions and horizons that are being put forward by generations of organizers and activists in South Asia that are, you know, as you point out, that that really draw upon, importantly, on the legacies of Gandhi, on Ambedkar, on, on Bhagat Singh. The other thing that that's striking to me, however, is that they are also very internationalist, perhaps, in their in their vision. And here I'm thinking about movements such as the Dalit Panthers, or I'm thinking about um, contemporary resurgences and contemporary re- uh, revivals of the legacy of the Gadda party as something that the diaspora can mobilize around. Um, I'm also thinking about how Indian activists and organizers today are positioning themselves in solidarity with and in relation to um, the ongoing movement for black lives. So as an intellectual historian of South Asia, um, you retain broad interest in black American anti-racist thought in third world solidarity movements and anti-apartheid activism in South Africa. Can you tell us how you became interested in South Asian revolutionary anti-colonialism in relation to these other critical intellectual political projects? And what does South Asian studies as a field, as as a disciplinary field, um, gain from situating these revolutionary currents within and against this broader tradition and terrain of insurgent intellectualism? I I think you've said it
0: beautifully. And I think that, um, you know, these are figures, uh, I mean, not only are they figures, uh, uh, Gandhi, Paget Singh, um, uh, Baker uh, and, and very, very, Bidke has become just a kind of enormous figure, as he should have always been. Um, but all of these figures loom very, very large in um, South Asian politics. Um, but I mean, just as you said, uh, uh, these are figures who never thought, um, Within the constraints of the nation, and they were always thinking um, in their own time, as well as the kind of afterlives um, uh, about the kind of uh, about kind of international solidarities, um, um, you know, uh, kind of other injustices as um, analogous to, and yet you know, completely um, you know, deserving of their own focus uh, to to, the, to South Asian anti colonial causes. Um, or uh, to you know to anti caste causes uh, or, um, or to anti uh, racist causes, and so I mean I mean for me um, you know, this project is you know, I think um, kind of indelibly about something in the present uh, and something, you know, something about the contemporary moment of increased nationalism, increased xenophobia, um, in uh, increased um, uh, uh, um, uh, or the kind of refusal for um, how should I say? Um, uh, let me start this over. <laughs> um, uh, it, 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 these are you know and the, this project is indelibly tied to the present in some significant way uh, because we live in a moment of increased nationalism, increased xenophobia, um, uh, the increased refusal of the state to 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 act on behalf of its citizens or in the interests of its citizens, or to even represent its citizens or to even have citizens. Um, and these are all questions that uh, you know, are, are pressing right now, but um, they were also pressing um, on a global scale uh, in the 1920s and 1930s. And, and one kind of one way that uh, you can uh, quickly, you know, it's not, you can quickly kind of flatten out this body of thought is to render it solely within the frame of the nation or the region. Uh, It it never was, it never, it never could be. Gandhi, Bhatia, Paget Singh, Lala Hardayal, all of these figures um, were thinking so expansively about um, political community, about about, uh, political solidarity, and that the, the nation simply is just inadequate, or uh, even the region is inadequate uh, for thinking um, w- what they were envisioning uh, or, in, or accounting for what they envision, what they were envisioning. Uh, like you said, Lala Hadar has this, uh, you know, it, his his importance now, as his importance was then, was this kind of wildly transnational vision for a certain type of um, what he called world state. Um, either is a kind of revolutionary bomb throwing um, anarchist socialist um, uh, party, like the Ghadar Party, uh, that you know, which moved from California to Punjab by way of Singapore and Hong Kong, and um, and Durban. Um, uh, that was one. And you know, Pugat Singh, for example, who kind of uh, starts the Hindustan Socialist Republican Army and is directly thinking um, of the Irish Republican Army. Uh, is reading their materials, um, and is also kind of deeply committed to um, watching what happens uh, after the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, and is also, I mean, uh, I've written about this elsewhere, is also watching Hollywood movies about Black people. And so, you know, and, and, and giving these kind of, you know, broad theories of kind of an- emancipatory politics, which is, uh, which is, you know truly global in its vision and scope, and then of course Gandhi was doing the same thing and Baker was doing the same thing um, you know and so uh, you know, my commitment to South Asian studies as uh, an area studies project is and um, I, mean, I, I had that commitment in some kind of in some kind of way, but I think you know, at the same time uh, to kind of draw those borders so uh, so neatly is to um, is really to miss uh, to miss some of the kind of sprawling, uh, you know, uh, sprawling a- accounts of um, transnational you know, communication to begin with, but also cooperation um, and solidarity.
1: Thank you so much. Yeah, let's talk more about, um, I guess, this body of egalitarian thought by turning to the book and its chapters. So the book addresses a broad range of archival material and theoretical concerns in the succinct 192 pages. Uh, Can you um, uh, tell us a little bit about the extent, historiography of South Asian revolutionary thought? Uh, Can you also um, really uh, tell us uh, the kind of uh, conversations that you see uh, uh, this book as making contributions to, and who were the intended primary theoretical interlocutors for this work? Uh,
0: I mean, I, I I will be curious to hear uh, what 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 you think the the the, the interlocutors are. Uh, having just kind of finished the book in some real way, uh, it it feels like I've emerged from some kind of echo chamber in my own head. But um, I, mean, I suppose the, I mean, there's a kind of um, there's a long history of uh, kind of in a biographic kind of a biographical mode of um of these figures they're not unknown figures in south asia by any means um and they have and there's a kind of long um history of um of political biographies uh uh of these men um you know as well as a, um some sort of kind of a desire to situate them in uh in the broad frame of intellectual history. And that's, that's been the case well before, I mean, even before um, national and in, in national independence, Pakistan national independence, in 1947, um, you know, the, these intellectual histories, biographi- biographies of these, um, of these men were being written. Uh, Paget Singh uh, was hanged in 1931. And the first biography of Pugat Singh came out in 1932 or 33. Right. And th- so these are, these are not, there's been this kind of, Almost a century-long history of um, of of biographies and of of of, of critical works situating these these thinkers in their
1: context.
0: Um, the the kind of twist in terms of South Asian history um, and South Asian studies is you know um, I, I won't go into that too much, but I mean, there was I mean in some ways one can kind of think about, uh, you know, this kind of, this, this moment that we're in as, you know, as is certainly kind of after the subaltern studies moment uh, uh, and some kind of somehow stuck between a subaltern studies critique um, and this desire for global intellectual history and for South Asia to be a a, a central part of that. And, uh, and I think, you know, this, this, this book certainly does not conceive of these thinkers as subaltern. They're not. Um, uh, but nor I think, does it a kind of cleanly um, fit within the kind of uh, um, the, the current state of, of South Asian global intellectual history. Um, certainly, I mean, it, I, I'm indebted, in, incredibly indebted to um, work by Kama McLean, Chris Moffat, uh, Ajay Skaria, uh, Simona Sani um uh Anya lumba uh, and uh, and many many other people who have um, returned to Bhagat Singh beyond uh, Gandhi uh, to um, to think them um, to think with them to think alongside them um, not simply to recuperate them as uh, as well, not, not simply to recuperate them uh, they don't need recuperation and um, but as, as, but to kind of think with them and take them seriously as uh, political thinkers, as political philosophers, um, but to do so uh, with attention to the fact that they weren't, they weren't political philosophers. That was not their job. Their job was, um, uh, well, I mean, their job I mean, They were anti colonial activists. So they were, they spent their time in jail, um, or they uh, were in hiding or they were, um, or they were busy in the case of a drafting the Indian constitution. And, and in addition to fighting for anti-castes, you know, in addition to fighting for Dalit rights. Um, so these are not people who, these are not kind of the equivalents of Adorno or Hannah Arendt, uh, these, uh, these kind of, these figures have to be thought, um, you know, uh, on their own terms and in their own, you know, in a very specific context, uh, and that requires this kind of, and I think that's the change that is, uh, you know, that that's the kind of dialogue that I see myself uh, uh, as at least indebted to, hopefully a part of um, but, you know, the nuance uh, its certainly someone like um, Ajay Skarya and uh, Chris Moffat and uh, Simona Sani and many, many others who are thinking that, that this moment right now.
2: Thank you so much for that. I I think that that's just so beautiful to could because I think that South Asian intellectual history right now is caught in this sort of position between, as you identify on one hand, recognizing the global import of the ideas of people like uh, Lala Hardayal or um, thinking about Gandhi as an Indian Ocean thinker, for example, in Isabel Hofmeyer's work, or thinking about another recurrent figure that I've noticed in the recent historiography of Salvation intellectual history has been Amman Roy and trying to trace the sort of... Transnational origins of Indian communist socialist thought um, that begins in Tashkent and Mexico rather than Delhi or uh, Bombay. On the other hand, there's a sort of persistent attention to the position of subalternity that you know um, that we've inherited from the legacy of the Subaltern School. So, what? How do we position these thinkers in relation to the sort of ongoing project of the Subaltern School? How do we reckon with this question of elite intellectualism or mass intellectualism or organic intellectualism? And I think that those are all very important questions that emerged for me when I was reading your book as well. Um, and I think that here, it might be, um, I would be remiss not to mention the first character, the, the, the first figure that you introduced in your book, actually, in, in the preface, and I think that if there were a figure in your book that we can truly call subaltern, it would be the one S. R. in your preface, um, and the book begins with his manifesto, the Five Laws of Library Science, emphasizing the right radical egalitarianism of reading practice and readership, uh, contrasted against uh, minutes on Indian education. This notorious document. Um, so I just wanted to probe you a little: Who is S. Ranganathan? and what are the stakes of returning to this? Biblo migrant world. How does returning to this um, set the stage for the subsequent chapters of the book?
0: Yes, uh, and so I mean, I uh, I, 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 mean, I was drawn to this uh, curious manifesto, uh, the five laws of library science, uh, which Sarojanathan wrote after he returned to um, uh, Madras, uh, Chennai, um, after his after a brief stay in the UK. Um, and by no means, I mean, I, I. It would be difficult to say that even Asar Raghunathan, although he is not particularly well known, um, he, he's he's not a, he's not subaltern. Uh, he in fact was kind of crucial in um, and some of the kind of major educational and public library acts of post-colonial India, uh, post colonial India, post independence India, um, uh, and uh, and and I think you, know, I, I think as. Uh, you know, as South Asian studies, as South Asian history, as South Asian intellectual history, um, you know, moves away from, but, but without betraying uh, the critique of subaltern studies. Uh, you know, I think, I, I think one thing that um, has been so crucial has been to um, kind of resituate these figures um, uh, as uh, as actually rethinking um, political subjectivity altogether. I mean, so the people who I'm thinking of here, um, who, are, who are working on this right now, there's someone like Shruti Kapila, um, uh, Faisal Devji, um, uh, Pratima Banerjee has a, a new book out just last week, which is, um, you know, which does precisely this, which says, look, I mean, these, these are, you know, she takes some of the same thinkers as the Shruti, as the Faisal, um, who all, these thinkers you know uh, are, are actually thinking are not kind of falling within the kind of uh, pre-given political subjectivities that we might imagine for them. They're actually reinventing, or uh, trying to reinvent, or trying to re-theorize the uh, political subjectivity from scratch uh, in the context of uh, an anti-colonial um, an anti-colonial movement. Um, and so, you know, someone like Asar Rangibantan, who does not appear to be immediately um, uh, kind of, overtly anti-colonial, nevertheless, uh, you know, in some kind of empirically active sense, um, you know, nevertheless, in his kind of very minor way of thinking about what libraries should be, um, begins to kind of theorize, uh, in, at least in my reading, uh, an anti-colonial theory of, of, of reading. Um, and, and and then consequently, what uh, you know, what it would mean to be an anti-colonial reader, what what that political subject would look like, what that political subject, how that political subject um, could, in fact, uh, escape the um, the confines of this colonial world, um, even if kind of sort of fleetingly, um, or, you know, or or could begin you know, more radically to kind of you know undermine the logics of this this still colonial world, um, just an act of, of, the very very minor act at least of reading, um, and so. You know, the phrase in the kind of this bibliomigrant world that, that that phrase belongs to Venkat Mani and Caroline Levine, um, who are thinking about you know, this kind of the kind of hectic circulation of books around the world, uh, the hectic circulation of, uh, of of different reading practices and 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 the way that reading practices are theorized in circulation. Um, you know, th- that that seems to me to be a really helpful way of both kind of accounting for the 1920s as a historical moment, but also um, uh, trying to begin to think of these um, these writers uh, unknown to very, very well known as um, as using that bibliomigrancy to re the political subject altogether, um, you know, far away from uh request to uh, uh, a kind of, Subaltern, non subaltern binary, or something like this?
2: I think that that's so beautifully be put because I, I think that that's exactly how I want to stage this question of the 1920s as, uh, as a period of intellectual productivity and as a period of um, intellectual fecundity, shall we say. And um, I don't think that to be sure, in, in, in the extent historiography, Lala Haldreyal, B.R. Ambedkar, M.K. Gandhi, and Bhagat Singh. Have been narrated and read within um, the canon of Indian nationalism, but they're usually kept sort of separate, so to speak. So when you think of like Lala Hardayal, you think of emigre anarchism and transnational leftism. Uh, Ambedkar is usually associated with legal constitutionalism and anti caste radicalism, uh, Gandhi with ethical nonviolence or in some of like Dave G's more provocative work, a thinker uh, par excellence of, of violence, and Paget Singh um, as I think a sort of revolutionary Marxism, um, the politics of the gesture. So, what are the stakes of returning to these figures today and setting them um, in conversation with one another? And how might we think about the question of spatial or temporal coevalness in relation to them? Uh, in other words, what are, what? What are the um, conversations, or what are the insights that might emerge by placing them in relation to one another, another as opposed to keeping these critical intellectual traditions um, separate?
0: I mean, I, 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 <laughs> I thank you for this question. I mean, this is this question gets at um, something I guess I had not. Um, uh, I have to admit, not really given much. Um, all right, let me let me see this again. Uh, I mean, thank you for this question. I mean this is a, this question gets at the heart of um, of something I have not. I mean, I, I kind of sh- have struggled to kind of put into words. I think uh, doing no small part to because for me, um, you know as I was writing this book, I was as I was researching this book, there was no question in my mind uh, that these four figures had uh, they shared a conversation. Um, and you know, it's 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 so it's it's only fairly it's only kind of after I wrote the the at least the first draft the second draft of the manuscript where I was confronted with I um, mean as you quite rightly point out uh, the fact that these figures are not true they're not really meant to be they're not often thought together um, and and that the the kind of putting them in conversation is a somewhat counterintuitive move. Um, f- for me, you know, uh, what holds these four figures together, and I think, um, and perhaps what what I you know I, I feel so strongly about, is uh, to the point of not being able to recognize it until and, and, until later, um, uh, is that these are figures who are um, both, and this is this is really important to me. They're, they're both, uh, you know. Incredibly important to the history of um, South Asian anti-colonialism, they're incredibly influential um, figures across the Indian Ocean world. Um, they're incredibly um, central to 20th century global history. I mean, these are not minor figures at all, um, and they were making—they were they were explicitly making demands against the British Raj against the British Empire, not simply in India, South Asia, but also you know, in, in, uh, in East Africa and in West Africa, and, uh, and as well as in you know, South Africa against the British and the Dutch. Um, but uh, you know, for me, uh, you know, at, while they are making these you know, very explicit demands uh, you know, against empire to the British Raj, uh, in uh, no uncertain terms, um, they were busy also theorizing their own. Um, what I use is in consequence, uh, which is to say that they were busy theorizing practices that would um, that would protect friends whose who would might, uh, whose lives would end before colonialism ended, uh, and they were thinking about a certain type of fleeting politics of the meantime uh, in order to take care of friends. In order to take care of each other uh, themselves, in order to take care of their political communities, um, you know, that would uh, that would, in some ways, you know, uh, sustain as, you know at least temporarily, uh, tem- temporarily uh, sustain um, you know, the 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 life of this political community well in advance of the arrival of some kind of post colonial utopia. So, um, you know, so reading right, uh, which is kind of the central um, kind of the through line of the book these re- I, I'm arguing here is that the is that reading is one of the kind of key ways that these anti-colonial thinkers were theorizing simultaneously you know, the, the the necessary act of making demands against colonialism uh, and also simultaneously trying to figure out ways of creating uh, you know, small minor um, you you know, uh, Ephemeral egalitarian utopias that might resemble the post-colonial utopia to come, but to do that in the present, uh, for those uh, whose lives uh, um, matter now, um, and, and whose lives might not, uh, ex- not who might not live to see the uh, this kind of post-colonial world uh, obtained. So I guess the, the 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 what holds these figures together, from even from from to Auerbach to Gandhi and Mbeka and Pagat Singh and Lala Hardayal, is uh, that these are thinkers who uh, are theorizing um, you know, extremely consequential uh, uh, acts and extremely inconsequential acts at the same time, um, and that and to me that is the uh, most exciting strain of anti colonial thought is is the is the is that which can kind of theorize a, a very explicit, anti-colonial, anti-racist, um, anti-hierarchical um, um, politics, and while in, in simultaneously theorize uh, the very, very minor way of enacting that uh, in the present, well in advance of it arriving
2: in the world. Mm. And I think that that's so beautiful, put because um, you actually begin here immediate rest with Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, uh, and Fanon, of course, is a thinker par excellence of that sort of relationship between the consequential and the inconsequential. How might we think about um, the the effect of collective revolution on what he observed as forms of quotidian life and seemingly inconsequential, um, you know, minor articulations of the everyday in colonial Algeria? Um, And your introduction, I think, just beautifully outlines an anti-colonial politics that these thinkers proposed of unknowing, unintelligibility, and collective unrecognizability. A radical politics was present. Methodologically, you describe your work as an anti-canon of literary thought, tracing disorderly histories, promiscuous modes of thought, impossible transformations, and improvisational uh, adjacencies drawing equally on Leela Gandhi's idea of moral imperfectionisms and Kenneth Church's illiberal humanisms. So here, my question really is, one might term this method as a very anti, anti-authorial project, inasmuch as it defies the successive authoritarianisms of stable legacies, authoritative claims to mastery over text, and the authorial function that's endowed to this idea of the sovereign author, what is the conceptual import of this um, hermeneutics in defiance of the idea of a stable archive? And thinking both along and against David Scott, mm-hmm. what relationship does this commitment to unknowing and non-futurity stage between an anti-colonial aesthetic vision um, and a post-colonial egalitarian practice? How are we to think about this in relation to our current debates uh, around anti-colonial thought and praxis?
0: Uh, this is That's a... a, a... A beautiful question i mean i think the, the the other two people who um who stand out here um uh, in addition to um in addition to leela and uh, uh gandhi and Kendra, um and one person who uh, whose work i would love to be uh, put alongside if 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 i may if, i mean it seems It seems almost rude to to do so to her work but be someone like Sadia Hartman, who is trying also to think about what to do with an archive, um, how to make an archive speak on behalf of um, an emancipatory vision as opposed to um, a police vision, uh, kind of a a social worker vision, right? This is um, is her latest book, but also kind of her entire project. and the other person whose work really kind of moved me, in addition to David Scott's was um, was David Marriott's, whose work on Fanon um, really brought, brings out, I think, the the importance of um, of a of an underappreciated um, strain in Fanon's thought, which is um, you know, there is an abyss between uh, where we are in the colonial present and the colonial and the post colonial world that we hope to reach. Um, and that abyss is uh, is not crossable in some really serious way, and so uh, you know, Marriott reads uh, David Marriott reads Fanon as a theorist of the abyss, uh, as someone who has to kind of think about the impossibility of a future, and what to do without expecting to attain uh, the success of the anti-colonial mission. And so someone, so Fanon thinks about spontaneity uh, about. Um, about the importance of uh, of you know collective of, of ephemeral collectivities uh of mass politics right um uh and in you know in distinction from the kind of replication of the french empire and the, the bourgeois leader um the, the the kind of bourgeois intellectual class and so on and so on. um uh i suppose i strayed a little bit from the question um uh I guess, um, how would I, uh, I mean, I think one way of thinking about um, anti-colonial thought now is to recuperate it as, um, I mean, this, this is, I mean, to recuperate it as properly political, um, and it, it certainly is political, but it is also um i think I mean, this is this is you know this is also what david scott um, uh, has argued elsewhere right is that to kind of uh, circumscribe the political in advance of uh, of analysis is to foreclose the possibilities uh, that the political that someone that someone's vision might exceed um you know someone's political vision might exceed our political vision uh, and so to return to anti-colonial thought with uh for me is to return to anti-colonial thought um, as critique uh which is to say it, it, it encompasses um you know, politi- politi- the political the aesthetics uh this you know, the aesthetic realm um and also this kind of um insistence on um on the position of the Critic, right, as, as opposed to the position of an author, authorial figure, whereas the, you know, the the critic um, in the kind of Benjaminian and the German tradition um, really is uh, someone who stands in awe of the world in front of him or her, um, and I think, uh, and, and I and, and, and what that makes possible is this kind of new uh, political world, uh, at least it did for Benjamin. Um, and I think the same thing is true for uh, anti-colonial thinkers of this moment, uh, contemporaneous anti-colonial thinkers, right? These are thinkers who are working at the same time Benjamin was and standing in awe of a world that they knew they would not live to see and writing on behalf of it and and needing to describe its aesthetic contours, its political contours, um, and yet you know being ever aware that the more that they would want to put into place the more that they would want to to be in charge of this post-colonial utopia um, the 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 uh, the more that they uh, the, the more they would foreclose about it uh, to, to bring anything from this from this colonial world to that post-colonial world is to is to still nevertheless um, draw some kind of you know, draw some kind of well it's just I mean sort of it um, you know, these are thinkers who, uh, much like Fanon, uh, knew that there needed to be an abyss between the world that we live in, the the, the colonized world, and the world that we hope one day uh, will occur. That that and on and and in whose behalf we must act, uh, which is the that postcolonial utopia. Um, but but nevertheless, right, um, that 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 the distance from here to there is is not simply. Um, is that one that we will uh, make in our lifetimes and it might not be one that is, is so straightforwardly bridgeable uh, and that requires a certain type of inexpert um, you know, a kind of expansively political and aesthetic um, critic.
2: And here I want to stay on uh, the topic of uh, criticism uh, slightly longer because I think that... Um, it's so interesting that you brought up Sidia Hartman, because when when I was reading your work, I precisely thought of the politics of the wayward, um, and in some ways you're tracing a wayward archive of anti-colonial thought that does not really conform strictly to to um, the protocols of the protocols of uh, let's say the protocols of authorial intellectual history that traces. Uh, the intellectual sort of legacy in a sort of stable sovereign manner but more rather you're you're kind of like tracing a genealogy of wayward thought that exceeds and expands beyond the boundaries of um, the text itself and extends to readership. Here I'm really interested with what you're doing uh, with this idea of Binyamin, Binyaminian criticism, and of course, you're tracing it through Kant, through Schlegel, to Goethe, Marx, Brecht, and you argue that this mode of criticism endures within its own incompleteness and implausibility. The other sort of major sort of um, foundation of your of your method is a project of comparative philology, and here Eric Auerbach's uh, Mimesis, and Edward Said's secular humanism are instructive, and how they theorize reading as an orientation towards a perpetually Incomplete knowledge of a perpetually unknowable world. So, how does this staging enable us to reconfigure the relationship between history and literature, and to rethink the critical potential of um, reading? Certainly, you know Benjamin, Auerbach and Said's writings have been read in the respective contexts of exile. So, how might we how might we then think about the centrality of this sort of of the minority problematic here? What, in other words, is the critics Exilic minor relation to a politics of the minor.
0: Uh, there's there's so many uh, there's so many good questions there. Uh, I mean I think um, I mean one is I mean one that I think uh, will continue to kind of uh, I think will continue to haunt me as I as I continue to work on this project and related projects is the question of the archive this um, this this archive. The archive for this book um, was uh, was sprawling uh, and um, and my approach to the archive was uh, idiosyncratic um, uh, I, I hopefully uh, i mean I, I ideally uh, approached the archive uh, in the way that I imagine uh, in the way that I kind of i i I want <laughs> the uh, I, and, again, and, and to mirror the ethics of the book, which is to say, I, I kind of want, I wanted to be um, this kind of critic in awe of these anti-colonial theories, not because I wanted to, not because I need, not because any one of these men needed another hagiography, uh, but because, uh, uh, you know, really I think the job of the critic is to, is to have the the work of art, the political text, um, you know, to to bring out its ability to speak in its fullness, right? And I think um, this is one of the kind of many components of Citi Heidman's work is to to have the text give the voice, uh, give the voices of the people who it was meant to silence. Um, And she does this, you know, just so beautifully and so phenomenally well. Um, The other question that you ask is... uh, is this kind of genealogy of of criticism that you know from Benjamin to Auerbach to Said um, that is 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 aggressively worldly? I mean, that's 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 so crucial. Um, you know, so so the kind of um, you know, one way I align c- the history of comparative literature with the history of anti colonial thought is to say is to to point out how incredibly global their visions were in the 1920s and in the face of um uh, of xenophobia fascism nationalism colonialism uh you know comparative philology of all things and anti-colonial thought you know, we we're, were really committed to to rethinking the world and nothing less than the world um and you know, it's in our block it's kind of the uh you know, figure that 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 gets this but this gets tied to and of course said, um who picks this up uh, in his uh, his reading of of our box my you know which you know as the I mean, mufti has said more or less is is, is more about box than Mimesis. Um, uh, but you know is this combination of uh, worldly criticism secular criticism um, and I mean as you as you said a, a commitment uh, or at least um, uh, a certain um, uh, this one finds a certain sort of um, uh, damagedness that uh, and this is kind of you know in in our uh, in, in box work uh, in in Adorno's work certainly uh, that and, and, and Said wants to recover that as well. Um, uh, but I think the. The, the point here would be, uh, would uh, I mean, is that, uh, oh, um, let, me, let me take another, this the last, uh, uh, oh, 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 sorry, sorry, I uh, need, need to refresh my memory of what the last part of that question was. So, um, you know, I think uh, Shruti Kapila actually helped me uh, see this really clearly Um but the, the book is a in the way she reframed this. But the book is, you know, in, the, in terms of um, what what it's up to, is is in some ways a triangulation of um, of of blackness, of um, of the Jewish question, of a question of exile, and the question of anti colonialism, and how one. I mean, I think the, the, what I've been what I wrestle with throughout the book is you know is how how do these three things um, how can we map these three things together. Um, it's not a straightforward project, uh, but you know the 20th century, I think, has been uh, has been guided by these the, a triangulation of these three uh, you know you know trajectories of radical thought. So on one hand, you know, the Black radical tradition has been so um, you know, crucial uh, to emancipatory politics, uh, you know, a- a- across the 20th century, uh, and um, you know, equally so has been uh, you know this movement from kind of the Jewish question to a question of exile, um, uh, to a question of um, of kind of the long inheritance of Judaism and Jewish Jewish thought, and then finally um, you know this question of uh, of of anti-colonialism, which uh, you know, in many ways uh, just simply kind of you know was I mean or someone like Adam Gottfried, uh has really beautifully argued, right, is imagining world-making after empire. And that is, uh, that's a incredibly, that can't be underestimated in the history, in the, in, the, in the 20th century. I mean, that was, there was an entire world to be remade. Um, so the kind of triangulation of these three things, one, uh, the Jewish question to exile, um, blackness, and anti-colonialism, and how one kind of maps those together, I think, um, is a question that I kind of, um, the question that kind of runs through the book—I—I I don't think I have come anywhere close to answering it. But I think it's the question that I think we still need to wrestle with. Um, you know, what is the configuration of these three radically influential um, and radically utopian um, and also radically despairing um, uh, uh, political visions? Um, how do we how do we keep these three? Um, In mind, and how how do we map them as uh, as kind of this configuration that moves um, across the 20th century? And what can we do with it um, in the 21st? What and what 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 are what are are the trajectories of these three bodies of work um, that can be mobilized, uh, or that can be um, uh, that have the kind of revolutionary potential that they they always? uh, And uh, I'll stop there. Uh, the question of you know the, i think the question of the the 21st century will be you know how can we uh um uh, uh you know follow through with the trajectory of these three bodies of work um you know thinking them together and also thinking them um on their own
1: thank you yeah i mean i i think um in uh the first chapter you kind of uh, um gesture toward a kind of uh interrogation of um, the kind of interplay between these three trajectories. So The first chapter um, uh, is about Lalaha Dayo's critical and reading practice. Um, And uh, I really appreciate how you um, really focus on his quiet, ethical, philosophical, and aesthetic contribution, and in particular, his commitment to reading as opposed to this kind of extent to uh, overemphasis on what you call the properly political. So this really reminds me of this body of work on quiet, really in black studies, uh, such as uh, the work um, by Tina Kemp um, and uh, Kevin Question. Um, So Can you say a little bit about you know, this, how this focus on quiet can help reorient our uh, current discussions about anti-colonial
0: thought oh I mean that that is a, a phenomenal question i um I think I, I, would be, I mean I, this is a uh, I would I would be curious to hear your thoughts on this I mean I think one um the kind of the I, I mean I, one one thinker whose work I just really admire and one one thinker who I think really um, has you know, is, Has picked up on a strain of, uh, I should say, um, Juliet Hooker's work on Black Fugitive Thought, um, uh, which I think does have a sense of um, of a commitment to quietness about it. Right, it is about um, uh, it is about fugitivity and it is about uh, it's about being on the run uh, uh, f- for your life, and which requires a certain type of. Um, uh, you know, silence, and then there is also this yeah. you know, Fred Moten's first book on the break, right? Um, you know, as kind of this relationship between uh, impro- improvisation and um, black survival. I think these these are kind of, I mean, I, as 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 um, as Black Studies has done such an incredible job pointing out. It's you know, it's these moments uh, that you know in the you know in in these silences. Um, you know, in these kind of secretive, uh, fugitive moments, right, uh, that that the black thought prevent, presents its uh, the black thought presents its um, most radical possibilities for uh, a political subjectivity and political community uh, and an egalitarianism in the face of you know, almost, nearly in inescapable and um, uh, in, in the. White, white racism and supremacy, white supremacy, and um, and what it means to um, uh, to to use silence, to use uh, improvisation, to use the um, condition of fugitivity, to create um, a way of living um, that can can nevertheless um, recover uh, or make lives possible uh, despite the continuation of Uh, of white supremacy and and racial uh, oppression.
1: Yes, um, um, that is uh, very beautifully put. Um, And um, so let's really talk more about this kind of uh, vision of uh, the way of living um, uh, imagined um, by uh, Har Dayo. Um, So in this chapter, um, you focus on uh, his uh, hints for self-culture which uh, is a book of short hints for personal development. And he used this book to illuminate how we conceptualized reading as a process of anti-colonial self-cultivation and as the formation of an anti-colonial philosophy. So can you say a little bit about um, his um, kind of conception of reading and the critique and uh, what kind of future post-colonial utopia um, uh, that he um, envisioned and um, what um, kind of conception, of temporality um, does this kind of vision gesture toward? It was the, the
0: I, I chose *Sense for Self-Culture* because it uh, not because it's a particularly outst- the good book in Haidel's uh, corpus, but actually because it's a kind of uh, it's a, it's a messy book. Uh, uh, that he writes very late in his life. It's, I think it's basically the last book he publishes before he dies. Um, and in, in it's uh, you know on one hand it's like an incredibly tedious book that tells you how many times you should chew your food, um, how, which languages you should learn, um, what what biographies of great men you should read, what biographies of great men you should not read, um, you know. The importance of various uh natural sciences i mean it, it is a very incredibly uh tedious book but at the same time um it is imagining that all of these kind of very very minor practices but especially reading um are always in the service of uh what he calls a world state and that world state uh, m- we will not live to see uh, he's he, he's very explicit about that uh but uh the people in that world state will look back upon us uh, and be grateful that we acted on behalf of their impossibility. Um, and so mm-hmm. there, there is this bizarre uh, temporality at play. I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, but again, I think you know, I think it's what's so compelling about that book and, the, and about Lara Hardayal as uh, in this moment of kind of, you know, uh, in the context of intellectual history is that you know, he's someone who a straightforward intellectual history um, is, is kind of insufficient. I mean, he's, he's, his influences uh, uh, um, are completely trackable, but they don't give you any sense of the kind of political vision that he is articulating. And so there's this gap between what into intell- the intellectual history could provide and what Harzael is up to. And so and I think in, what I was trying to do in that chapter is to kind of give a sense of um, uh, this relationship between um, imagination and possibility um, and the ideas of history.
2: Beautiful. Um, and now we'll turn to uh, your, su- your succeeding chapter on Ambedkar. And here you explore the critical force of three disciplines under Ambedkar philology, sociology, and sociophilia. The project of comparative philology, you argue, enabled Ambedkar to stage an anti-caste critique that was rooted in the canonicity of caste in European philological and literary analysis. The most radically egalitarian practice for Ambedkar was reading Manu. How was it that Ambedkar arrived at this position where the practice of reading was central to the model of a true annihilation of caste?
0: Uh, <laughs> I, I think I mean this is uh, again my um, I guess this is a question for how I approach the the text at hand. Um, I mean, there's no there's no where where says explicitly you know what reading um, will do, what reading makes possible, and yet um, it's, it's it's tracing his um, kind of these moments where he says, okay, let's read. Manu, let's read the Manushmiti Let's read. Uh, you, you, fine, this is where you come up with your, your your brahminical privilege. Fine, we'll read it together. And so I mean, what I was doing was tracing these moments where Ambedkar says, "Let's read the text," um, and, and it's true, and 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 it's true philological position, which is to say that all of these kind of uh, brahminical um, texts which uphold the most nefarious forms of caste. Um, uh, were indebted to uh, colonial philology. And so then there's this kind of, um, there's a, but Mbika does not, it's not simply that he can simply say, look, your, your, your Brahminical privilege is based on um, British colonial documents uh, or, you know, Orientalist scholarship. Um, but he actually holds, you know, he, he says, fine, let, let us read this together and figure out, you know, what, what is the confusion? Uh, what 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 holds this text's authority in place? And when you read something like Manu you uh, you find that there is no, which is you know the Manushmiti, which kind of posits Manu as this you know uh, uh, um, authority and author. Par excellence, like the once once you could have once you read Manu the Manushmiti with Ambedkar, what you find is that there's a sort of I mean, what Ambitka um, calls a madness uh, at the core of um, this claim to authority, um, which is essentially um, uh, when authority not present. And so the act of reading um, on one hand for Ambitka is this, is a, is a sort of um, uh, what might be called deconstruction, uh, at least destruction uh, of the text. At the same time, it's not entirely. It's not so totally. Um, you know, it's, it's it's not about destroying, uh, but it's actually about a certain type of. Um, and this is and this is what I think something. You know, it's a, it's about a certain type of uh, a creation of an anti caste uh, of a of a truly egalitarian um, anti caste uh, world, and. Um, and so, you know, simply kind of destroying Manu is insufficient. But actually, coming up with um, a way—you know—so coming up with the the thing that would destroy Manu, which is to read together, is itself a creative is the creative act, right? So, in the so it's one thing to dismantle Manu's authority. Fine. Um, it's another thing to do so in a way that actually, uh, in in so doing, uh, brings about the political community of egalitarianism that you seek to, to that, that Ambedju was seeking to bring about. Uh, and that was that he brings that about through these kind of claims to uh you know, are these these demands to, you know, read this text with me. Um, that seems to me to be the uh, the egalitarian assertion at the same time that he's uh, undermining um, textual authority. Uh it's it's, it's the double it's a double move there. Uh, that seems to me to be the kind of utopian uh the, the kind of radical practice. Uh,
2: and that I think is intimately connected with how Ambedkar was thinking about the social. Um, and this informs the the second half of your chapter, where, where you trace the sort of sociological grounding that Ambedkar was constantly in conversation with. Um, specifically, the idea of uh, endosmosis proposed by uh, Henri Baxon, as you trace, comprises both a concept of habit or duration and of membranal penetration or space uniting the perpendicular axis of human consciousness. How did this subtend Ambedkar's writing of The Annihilation of Caste, and how will Ambedkar's arguments on fraternity and kinship inflected through the theoretical concerns of the discipline of sociology? Ultimately, what is the political subject, um, that which you term sociophilic subjectivity, that Ambedkar proposes in The Buddha and His Dharma, Um, what are the radical implications of this non-foundational, non-autonomous subjectivity to concurrent claims for Dalit autonomy and political subjecthood?
0: So there's a couple of uh, uh, issues there. So one is simply that uh, Bigger trained at Columbia University as a sociologist in the 19-teens, which was when simply uh, sociology had yet to figure out um, what its disciplinary autonomy was. And so was actually kind of reveling in a certain type of messiness between psychology and philosophy and biology and uh, and Henri Brooks' vitalism. Uh, um, And so uh, reading Annihilation of Caste, which takes place kind of 20 years after this kind of grand sociological, early sociological moment, um, what you see in Annihilation of Caste is this indebtedness to um, this wildly imaginative and uh, uh, an expansive notion of what sociology could be, and what sociology could be was actually um, a direct response to the certain type of to a certain type of liberalism uh, or individuality that uh, psychology uh, upheld, right? And so, you know, so, sociology under the influence of vitalism, under the influence of Henri Bergson. Um, you really is unconvinced of the autonomy of the human subject. Uh, you know, the kind of the, the smallest unit for sociology at this moment is at least society. And, but nobody can kind of put their finger on what exactly that is. And, uh, and so, you know, you, although Mbika is in many ways uh, a liberal thinker, uh, in many ways a pragm- he's also a pragmatic thinker. Uh, he's someone who is, uh, is a lawyer and a legal theorist. Um, he's also someone who I think you know the, kind of begins to also think on the side about the insufficiency of um, of the of thinking the liberal human subject um, you know, that will always cat, that that will always you know lay the groundwork for the reproduction of caste um, and so you know, terms like endosmosis uh, terms like uh, fraternity, uh, and then when he when he kind of you know, turns to Buddhist texts uh, Mitra fellowship. Um, you know, these are ways I think that he's trying to you know, draw on this kind of wildly expansive imagination of early sociology to um, to rethink the uh, to, to to claim the you know, to to just dis- to, to dismiss um, the exceptionality of the of the kind of autonomous human being in favor of a certain type of what, I, what I'm calling sociophilic subject, um, which you know, it's not simply about. Um, uh, it would be about some. It would be about creating a subject um, that could not be susceptible to caste That um, uh, would revel in uh, its touchability and its contaminability, um, uh, without universalizing the status of uh, of the dalit or the brahmin. Right? It would just simply. It would render. Um, it would render caste unthinkable. It would render caste impossible. And obviously, this is a kind of, this is this is not at the core of, um, and Baker's main work. Uh, this is kind of the kind of the, the, on the imaginative margins of it, um, and a lot of kind of post and thinking, which has been so influential and necessary um, you know, for Dalit rights, um, has uh, has has relied on, um, you know, a different trajectory of Embigd's thought, uh, which is, uh, much more about, uh, um, you know, rights seeking and rights demanding. And, 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 this has been absolutely necessary work. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's other modes of, um, political organizing that, um, that, are, that, you know, that, that call themselves Embigd right, uh, and draw, you know, very richly on Embigd's thought, um, you know, that, but and, that that are all of, that, are, that are very very much committed to, um, you know, demanding um, you know constitutional rights, demanding um, anti caste rights, uh, demanding anti caste, um, demanding the end of caste uh, as a juridical legal um, social function. Um, you know, th- these are these are all these are all equally drawing on. Uh, and baker uh in baker's rich body of um of thought and writing um that you know that really is, ex- that is so expansive that I conclude that that it can include um you know, these kind of imaginative impossibilities and at the same time you know he's someone who wrote one of the most you know one of the kind of radical one of the most radically egalitarian constitutions um and and to recover that kind of, um, kind of moment of constitutional activism of juridical activism, I think is equally necessary. Um, and, the, and that, I think is um, what is so, um, exciting about the kind of, ambiturate, ambiturate, um, right post and Baker and Baker, um, that activism, uh, is, is, is watching that trajectory unfold.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Um... So, um, you uh, continue this discussion about um, the kind of um, insurgent and um, generative potentialities of uh, messiness and in certitude in your chapter about Gandhi, which is chapter three. And this chapter is really interesting because uh, it explores Gandhi's anti authoritarian, anti colonialism by way of his losses, failures, inconsistencies, and apologies. Um, so in this chapter, you offer a few examples of how Gandhi revelled in his. Uh, here I quote: relinquishment of mastery and its uh, attendant values, maturity, reason, comprehensibility, and seriousness. And um, quote: How can you? Um, how? How did Gandhi uh, conceptualize logic, uh, mastery, and incertitude? And. Um, this um, what you uh, call double renunciation of mastery as forms of anti-colonial resistance, and how um, is this uh, relinquishment of uh, authority uh, related to Gandhi's own reading practice?
0: Yeah, so that chapter is structured around uh, the, uh, around the, around the many things, but uh, the kind of. One of the the key under you know, the kind of key guiding forces is that is the sense um, that Gandhi loved to lose debates rather than to win them, uh, and so you know it. So to begin with, looking at you know failed fasts, um, uh, you know really seriously. Um, in dumb ways of, setting, you know, of opening, you know, opening his argument with, I am totally wrong about this and I will continue to debate you about this, but I am completely wrong about this. Um, and, you know, all of these other moments, um, these moments of apologies, uh, for, uh, for getting things wrong. Um, and, 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 and starting from that point, right. Then you know, we can go back and read Faraj And if Gandhi is someone who is, um, always trying to lose debates in order to bring about his own inconsequentiality um, or you know, in order to kind of stage a certain type of um, inconsequential uh, egalitarianism, um, then you know, what In Suraj looks like as a debate between the editor and the reader, um, the, the reader is the person who admits defeat multiple times and, you know, and says, I don't understand, this is confusing. I am, you, you have won, you have totally won, you have shattered all of my illusions. Um so the you know that, that kind of you know how do we position Gandhi not as the editor of Hinsuraj, but as the reader of Hinsuraj? And then you know what does it mean to uh, to use this idea of losing debates as a way of um staging egalitarianism? And just as you said, I think this I think this this interest in losing debates, this interest in, in, in messing up and failing uh, is um is a way of asking to. You know, this is his his kind of his formulation. Asking to be given up as foolish. Um, you know, so when asked to defend his uh, vegetarianism in London, um, he's a completely unable to, um, and he asks instead that he just be given up as foolish. And what to me, to me, this this the way I read this is um, is uh, it, it's, it's Gandhi is relinquishing his ability to relinquish himself and asking someone else to relinquish him on behalf of him. And so what you get is in this doubled renunciation, you actually get two equal renunciants. One, someone who has given up Gandhi, and uh, Gandhi who has given up him, his ability to give him, himself up. <laughs> um, uh, and and this kind of, uh, this this insistence on, um, on giving up and losing, and asking the other person to, to win and then give you up as foolish um, is this kind of is a way of staging um, this renunciatory um, uh, egalitarianism uh, in that in the in the present.
2: And now turning to uh, Bhagat Singh's jail notebook, which, you know, to me, it was really redolent of how some scholars have attempted to read Gramsci's prison notebooks as a text that was written in exile, as a text that was simultaneously concerned with uh, the consequential and the inconsequential. And here, your chapter begins with a list of demands advanced by Bhagat Singh for better jail conditions. So how does the inconsequence of these demands form the basis of a minor politics and how might we theorize the role of the commonplace, the quotidian, in the emergence of a non-authorial politics of the present, refusing the orientation to its futurity? Specifically, what is the importance of reading and critique for Paget Singh in his vision of philosophical and political egalitarianism? And here, I think that the most sort of um, familiar resemblance for me is both Black theories consistent refusal to, con- to to secede the realm of the everyday, mm. the sort of of Black theory, especially Black feminist thought, in kind of looking at the everyday as a site of ongoing struggle and the everyday as a site of um, uh, the quotidian, the everyday, the way with as a site of um, thinking about a political project, as well as perhaps um, in a very different vein, the project of queer theory, especially under Lee Edelman, who has theorized around this idea of um, refusing futurity, um, thinking alongside thinkers like Halberstam, Adelman, um, who have all contributed to this idea of um, the commonplace, the absurd, um, and a sort of politics that lingers and stays in the present, refusing this orientation towards what what is termed reproductive um, futurity. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that sort of... That constellation of politics that inheres within Bhagat Singh's demands.
0: Yeah, no, I think you've put your finger on it, um, really precisely. So, in you know Bhagat Singh's list of demands, you know, as he's faced, I mean, as, as he's really at this point, when he offers, the, when he puts forward this list of demands, he is he is he knows that he will be hanged, uh, and in fact, I mean, he's he in some ways welcomes it. I mean, this is his position somewhat as a as a martyr, as a shaheed. Um, uh, and the list of demands is a really curious list of demands. Uh, it, mostly, it's about books. Uh, it's about uh, better reading material. And uh, and so the question is, you know, what does it mean to demand better books <laughs> when you're facing when you're facing death? And uh, and to me, this is uh, and this is at least in my reading of Paget Singh. Uh, This is a a demand for a certain type of inconsequentiality that does not expect future results. He does not expect to be an expert on any of the books that he's writing or he's he's reading. Uh, He does not expect to be an expert on any of the books that he's reading. Uh, He does not expect to be a master of some kind of um, tradition of communism or socialism uh, or Marxism um, that many of his hagiographers have, um, have wanted to. To give him credit for. Uh, but instead, I, you know, the, you know, the jail notebook, the solicitor demands, this desire to read unto death, um, really signals to me a commitment, a kind of full commitment to uh, to, to, a, a, to an egalitarianism of critique in the present. And yes, I think, and I think Black feminist thought has been extraordinary in thinking about the quotidian uh, and, and retaining a commitment to and, and, and arguing for the importance of um, the everyday. Uh, the the minor, um, and you're also right. The uh, you know, in consequence, uh, and a certain type of non-futurity has been uh, one of the key concerns of queer theory. The element Jose Munoz, uh, uh, Jack Halberstam. Um, I think one of the ways I depart from that mode of queer theory is uh, is that you know I, there's a certain type of I mean, at least for Edelman, mate, there's a certain type of and 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 Munoz and Habermas have both critiqued Edelman for this. Uh, there's a certain type of antisociality to that uh, non-futurity, and right. I think that um, anti-colonialism, at least in the kind of figures that I'm interested in, uh, is not at all antisocial, but actually kind of vigorously, uh, uh, kind of vigorously, um, you know, invested in. Um, the contemporary moment as deeply social, as deeply committed to an egalitarianism with other people, you know, in the at right now, right? Um and um and this this can't be judged upon. I mean, I think the way in which I depart from Halberstam is his you know his commitment to um you know success or failure, I think I think there's no a certain type of radical egalitarianism of the of inconsequence of non-futurity and actually can't be judged on any kind of basis of success or failure. It has no, it seeks no outside judgment, um, and so um, you know, it, it is. It is simply kind of an inexpert commitment to others and reading with others right now. Um, and yes, yeah, so in, in that sense, I mean, this is it. it does not really emerge out of um, uh, of a, a certain strain of queer theory, and the and the the, the, the Another person who is important to think with here is Anne-Marie Jargoz whose book on um, inconsequence and um, lesbian representation in fiction is uh, an absolutely fantastic um, reconception of of this notion of inconsequence um, uh, and as a particularly queer and as a particularly lesbian um, way of thinking, uh, you know, thinking queer politics. I think I mean, one other thing I could quickly say is uh, I, mean, I think the, the, this applies perhaps both to um, the figures that I'm interested in uh, as well as to me um, is, uh, is, is someone who's been extraordinarily, um, who just has a kind of a really beautiful way of approaching um, archives is Claire Hemmings, whose book, uh, Considering Emma Goldman, is has just been one of the kind of really influential texts, uh, that, that I've relied on as I've, I've written as I wrote this book. And and for Hemmings, right, this is you know, one goes to the archive, um, with it with a commitment, um, with an affective pull, and and one also finds in the archive, um, you know, these a certain way of, uh, of, uh, So so, so, you know, one finds in the archive uh, the the figures that the figures that exceed any kind of possible attempt to uh, to constrain them within the archive in the first place. And so, um, Claire Hemings, uh, uh, you know, in that kind of same strain of queer theory, um, Claire Claire Hemings has been incredibly uh, influential to me as well. Hmm.
2: Thank you so much for that. And I I think just staying on the topic of Bhagat Singh for a little longer, two figures recur in our understandings of Bhagat Singh, the atheist and the terrorist. And you argue that atheism here, um, it names the relinquishing of theological transcendence and the imagination of an unknowable world closely aligned with secular criticism. Terrorism, on the other hand, names the primacy of the gesture, foregrounded in an affect of Irrelevance and unknowingness. How might we think about these two figures in relation to each other, and how might it yield the yield a politics embedded precisely in a refusal of mastery, authority, and metaphysical assuredness?
0: Yeah, so I think um, the uh, to think um, to think one of the kind of key texts that gets talked about when Pugatsing gets talked about is uh, his um, essay "Why I Am an Atheist." Um, and you know, and it is I mean, it's a very curious essay, not least because the the body of the, the text of the essay has very little to do with the title, which I think really has uh, has skewed analyses. But I mean, it's it the, the text really outlines um, you know, it, it, Singh is responding to critics who say that he's he knows himself, he knows what he knows his politics too well, he's too full of himself, and he's actually he actually set up, he sets up a politics. Uh, his response is setting up a politics that where he, in fact, does not know anything about what he's doing, uh, does not know what it will bring about, but knows that uh, you know what he could possibly guess about this kind of post-colonial utopian world is is absolutely something that he must act on behalf of, even though he cannot um, know, even though he knows very, or even though he cannot know anything particularly much about what that world will look like. Uh, and or certainly can't be sure of anything of it. And uh, you, know, you know, similarly, I mean, the 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 terrorist is a different sort of configuration. So I mean, there's been the uh, uh, Ghosh has written about this. Um, uh, uh, there's a there's a new book um, Joseph McQuaid has written about this. Um, uh, the the terrorist is is a, is a certain type of creation. Um, uh by the state as a way of in fact um you, know, you know, it, it's the the state labels someone a terrorist who it 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 can you know, it, who it confidently predicts will create or uh, will, will perform some sort of action so you know unlike paget singh's atheist right who does not know anything about the future after his uh, after his death you know the, the state's determination of who is a terrorist who is not a terrorist is is you know is a very confident authorial, authoritarian uh, vision for um, you know who and who is and who is not a political actor, um, and, and 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 what politics is, and so in some ways I mean to, to put these next to each other is to think um, you know on one hand a kind of radical um, in expertise versus a certain type of um, you know authoritarian uh, mastery. Uh, you know, in the name of that 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 comes in the name of terrorism or that comes in the name of who gets to describe what terrorism is who and who is a terrorist um, and you know for me uh, uh, you know, Bhagat Singh is is a reader <laughs> unsurprisingly uh, whose atheism is the kind of is is one aspect of this this readerly uh, persona this readerly subject um, uh, whereas you know New terrorism is something that had, that, that's, that demanded his death um, because it predicted it, 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 it claimed to predict um, what, what he would, what he would do next. Um, and I think it, it, Chris Moffat has written kind of very, very beautifully about this. Um, one of the things that has haunted Paget Singh is uh, when, you know, Productively, uh, I think, uh, you know, especially in, in Moffat's account, um, is this kind of is his afterlives, his afterlives, um, which have been marked by you know, these all these desires for what Puckett Singh could have been uh, had he lived, right? And um, you know, in the case of the jail notebook, right, in the case of his um, his, his demands for better reading material, um, what we find is this becomes proof for his um, would his his. Is he that it becomes proof that he would have written four books on communism and, not, and Marxism had he lived. And for me, this, this is much more in line with a you know, as sympathetic as I am to this desire to um, to to make Puget Singh uh, a, something of an intellectual. Um, you know, I think it does actually stand in contrast to the vision that Puget Singh had for himself, which was someone who was uh, you know going to read um, in an in expert way. Um, until he faced the until he faced the noose, uh, uh, until he faced that knot, as he says. You know, so, um, and you know, and after that, there would be nothing else, right, according to him. So, I think I was trying to recover that um, that Puget Singh, uh, n- you know, not the Paget Singh that has an afterlife um, in Punjab, which is incredibly rich, uh, but I, which I think is is a is a, is a, is a different question. Um, uh, and yeah.
1: Yes, thank you. Yeah, and um, and uh, so first of all, I really appreciate how you um, always cite other people. And um, so this book, in a way, is really about a politics of citation. And uh, in your really discussion of your own book, you also. Uh, really um, show us your political citation, and I really appreciate that. Um, so in um, the epilogue, blog, you uh, really continue this discussion about futurity, about um, uh, the kind of relinquishment of authority, about uh, the kind of uh, uh, establishment of uh, communities. Uh, and you uh, really, um, you talk about this idea of stopping and leaving Right, you explore the politics of stopping and leaving as the final act of anti-colonial refusal. Um, so why does um the anti-authoritarian anti-colonial mode of reading uh that you have examined thus far demand that we stop and then leave? What should we stop and leave? We stop and leave to do what? And how about the people who are not able to do so? Yes, so uh, I mean,
0: I you know. Uh, uh, maybe we can talk uh, if there's time about, you know, what, what holds all of these various uh, seemingly, I, you, as we talk about them individually, they seem you know, detached from one another, but you know, I think running through them is this concern for, um, uh, you know, obviously for reading, uh, obviously for a certain type of anti-colonial inconsequentiality um, and, and egalitarianism. Um, and, you know, and for me, you know, the moments that it appears, uh, and I think and this is especially the case, and in, in all four of these thinkers, and and also in Fanon, and also in Alibi, um is actually I mean what would we would now call a kind of politics of citation, right? Which would be uh, that you know, that you know, foregrounding the the you know, it, it, it's it's not simply about foregrounding the authority of others, but actually kind of calling you know ca- calling Everyone, calling, you offering an invitation um, to uh, to to read alongside me, uh, and and likely come up with a completely different reading than the one that I have. Uh, and so, you know, I think that seems to me to be very clear. And uh, a lot of the anti-colonial writing that I that I've written about, um, uh, which is that it is a certain type. Uh, it is not simply kind of a, a politics of citation to to. To pass authority on to others, but actually a certain type of uh, kind of citation in order to invite others to read alongside um, with the critic, uh, with the anti-colonial critic, with the philological critic, as so one. Um, in the conclusion, or in the epilogue, uh, it's not a conclusion. It's an uh, <laughs> um, uh, in the in the epilogue. What I was trying to think through is um, it was what to do um, when. We reach an end, um, but colonialism has not reached its. Which it would, which I think, um, you know, kind of, we have to have a kind of sort of clear-eyed vision of the world we live in. It's a, high, it's a colonized world. It will remain a colonized world. Uh, how do we take care of others? How do we take care of our friends um, uh, in this colonized world without kind of uh, predicating that care on um, some sort of eventual success. Um, which we it seems entirely unlikely that we will live to see. And so what I do is I and so I so I turn to the conclusion of the Ratchet of the Earth, uh, which final wrote on his deathbed, and I turn to, Baker's conversion to Buddhism, um, two months before he dies in 1956. And uh, what I noticed about both of these um, these kind of moments is uh, these texts is that uh, there's a there's a kind of curious um, form of anti-colonial refusal, which says we have to stop. I mean, as you said, we have to stop and leave. And then finally, we have to endeavor to create, I mean, this is phenomenal, we have to endeavor to create uh, a new man from the wretched of the earth. Right. Um, and I guess the question that emerged for me was, uh, the question that conf- I had when I, when I noticed this was, yeah. you know, what does it mean? To, what does it mean to stop? Um, you know, why why should we stop? Why shouldn't? It seems more likely that the French Empire, the British Empire, should stop. But why should we stop? Uh, and then, uh, what does it mean to leave? Uh, you know, for for now, right? Uh, we must leave. His his line is: we must leave this world. Uh, you know, we we you know this this we must leave this Europe, which massacres men on every corner of the world, um, and so. And then, and, then, and then finally, we must leave in order to endeavor to create a new world. Um, and, and the same is true for Mbikta, right? A conversion to Buddhism is, um, is stopping being Hindu, stopping being untouchable and leaving the Hindu fold. But the catch in both cases is that there's no way, to, it's not clear what to stop. And certainly, it's very clear that there is nowhere to go. Uh, and so what is this act? Um, what is this act about? Uh, in, in the final instance, right? These are the, these are the last moments uh, of both of these men's lives. And I think in the final instance, right? This this, this demand to stop and then to leave and then to endeavor to create is, uh, like I've just said, um, it is an invitation uh, issued an extraordinary risk because we do not know who will accept it um, with or without our permission. Um, to become uh, if, at least if fleetingly uh, a, cl- a political collective uh, rooted in extraordinarily um, risky egalitarianism. So uh, when we say the word we, right, we, uh, you know, for, at least for Fanon, at least for, for, for Baker um, you know, the, this we is not said, this third person, or this first person, this first person plural is not said as a way of, um, of excluding, but actually, as uh, as a form of invitation to participate in this, in, in the creation of a new world, in the creation of a new human, right? Um, and so, you know, to stop and to leave is to to disrupt, is to render discontinuous. Um, you know, the the what will likely be the ongoing forces of um, of of colonialism, of casteism, of racism. And to imagine at least for one second uh, that we might find others in the world uh, who will be um, us with us right, right. Um, and you know, for me that uh, it is a very very small uh, very very minor politics um, but uh, you know for the for for those whose lives have been rendered um either Relevant uh, to the state's concerns, or those whose lives have been, uh, you know, the state actively expects to end. Um, you know, asserting this invitational, um, risky egalitarian first person plural, um, it really is 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 the is the is the anti colonial act, is the egalitarian act in the final instance. And I think someone like uh, Candace Chu has written really beautifully about this, right? The uh, kind of a certain type of we as a, um, an illiberal humanism, um, or Anika Thulare, who whose book um, "Practicing Caste, um you know, is is about this um, this aporia between um, what you know, the we that we want to be. And the way that we are and nevertheless we have to begin this fiction you know, he calls it what he calls a fiction of of this invitation which is infinite and expansive um and which renders I mean, I, which will hopefully render right for him um the they will render cast impossible uh because you know this this infinite invitation into an egalitarian we first uh, first person plural um will, is at least this at least this attempt um, to to herald uh, a political community rooted in, um, in, in 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 equality rooted in equality and, um, and a commitment to um,
2: to others in the world. Beautiful. So before we move on to our, to our last traditional question, can you please read us a paragraph from the book?
0: Uh yes. Um, um. Will you give me one second to turn on the light? I'm now sitting in darkness, and then um, I was hoping that you might have a suggestion uh, for this paragraph.
2: Uh, yeah. So, I I was thinking that uh, one paragraph that really stood out to me was the paragraph on on page. One hundred and twenty nine. Um, what type of criticism is done for friends who might be dead? Um, it's just such a beautiful reading of Auerbach, I thought.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Um, um, yes, I would happily read this paragraph. Um, so this is this paragraph is uh, is um, is the last paragraph of the book. Um, it's in the context of um, thinking. Uh, as we've just talked about, uh, finance demand to stop and leave, and endeavor to create. Bakers demand to stop and leave, and endeavor to create. And then finally, uh, Eric Auerbach's demand to stop, uh, leave, and endeavor to create. Um, you know, uh, and uh, and in the case of Auerbach, right, uh, who's writing my thesis from Istanbul, um, Auerbach is has written a book um, for friends that he does not know. Um, will have survived, uh, he does not know what, he's, he's writing for friends uh, who may or may not have survived uh, the Holocaust, um, but he can't possibly know this from Istanbul. Um, and so this is the final paragraph. What type of criticism is done for friends who might be dead? Auerbach is being literal here. He is read for friends who are unable to flee Nazi Germany and who have therefore likely died, though he cannot know that from Istanbul. Auerbach offers his work of art to the anonymous dead and in the face of his lifelong exile, the resigned, unsatisfied, and inexpert critic has ended an essentially incomplete task. He longs for friends, for friends who have not survived, but also for friends whom he will never know. His readers are inconsequential and anonymous friends, and reading with them will make a fleeting world. Anti-colonial and philological thought offer us a model of critique in the service of a world we will not live to see it is an impossible task for an impossible politics and it is impossibly urgent
2: thank you so much for that um well daniel we've taken up a lot of your time so can you just tell us what you're working on now and about your current and future projects
0: yes i mean uh, uh so i am uh currently working on a second book about uh, anti-colonial sociology so it, it emerged actually from my chapter on Embigdor Ambedkar and Ambedkar's, uh training in sociology and what I discovered as I was working on that was um, was that a number of anti-colonial and uh, kind of post-independence um, third-world thinkers received degrees in sociology at that moment where it was that kind of nascent field um, that had no idea what it was doing and was kind of floundering about for its methodology, and so this includes Kwame Nkrumah, um, W. B. Du Bois, um, uh, to some extent, uh, and those slightly uh, uh, this kind of tangential uh, Jomo Kenyatta. Uh, it also includes um, Bjorn Baker uh, and a few other people. And what I hope to do there is to kind of is to really rethink the history of. Of sociology uh, by putting anti-colonialism at the core, uh, at, the, at the center of its foundational moment, and then also to kind of really draw out um, what this kind of expansive sociological imagination um, does uh, uh, reveals about um, third world solidarity movements uh, in the 1940s and 1950s, um, or and up to the 1960s. Um, so, trying to think. Um, you know, that that the wave of decolonization, um, Afro Asian solidarity, the Bandung Conference of 1955, trying to think all of those um, in relationship to a certain type of early 20th century sociological project, sociological project, and also trying to think the history of sociology as fundamentally um, and radically anti colonial, anti racist, um, and uh, and egalitarian. So, we'll see how
2: that goes. <laughs> well, I'll certainly be looking out for that because that sounds incredibly exciting. And I think that that also gestures at, you know, like expansive political horizons that might illuminate our current this political quagmire that we find ourselves <laughs> in, this political present. So, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. And thank you, listener, for listening to today's episode in which we explored world literature for the wretched of the earth by Professor J. Daniel Elam, published by Fordham University Press in 2020, also available under the title Impossible and Necessary, Anti-Colonialism, Reading and Critique, published by Orient Black Swan in India. You can find the book on Bookshop and other outlets. This is your host, Calvin Ng.
1: And I'm Nthi Liu.
2: Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.